0: Uh, We are so thankful that we can call upon you as our Father because we were once enemies and hostile towards you because of our sin, our failure to give you the honour to which you deserved. But we thank you that the punishment which was due to us, which is death, Jesus Christ entered into the world for the very purpose of bearing The cost of death upon himself on behalf of sinners. So that all who trust in him and call upon him may know that their sins are forgiven. That we have peace with you. That we have a relationship with you and a future and eternity with you. That there is indeed hope within this world in which we live in that is so corrupted by sin. And Lord, we thank you that this morning as we look at the way in which you totally transform the life of this man, Saul. We see the life-transforming effect of the gospel, but also we see that the gospel is able to save even the most unlikely of people. So as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you would uh, work through me by your Holy Spirit, but that you would work in all of us, myself included, that we might hear, receive and respond rightly to you. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I mentioned in the beginning that I've been to prison hundreds of times. And they always let me out. For about four or five years I used to go in every Wednesday afternoon to Fulham Correctional Centre in Gippsland, Victoria. Um, But it wasn't... Uh, specifically for offences. It was going in there as a volunteer uh, with prison fellowship where I would lead a Bible study. Now, that was a massive learning curve to lead a Bible study in a prison because there are some dynamics that, surprise, surprise, are very different than other Bible studies that I've led in the past. And in particular, one of the biggest learning curves I had was deciding what things, when people say something, what things do you just let go And what things do you really need to stop and address? Because the reality is on any given week, if I corrected every false idea that was put forward, we actually wouldn't cover any of the material we were supposed to cover. Now, inmates, while they're in prison, they've got a lot of time up their sleeve. And they do a lot of reading. But it seems to work out that in terms of their Bible reading, the books they love reading the most are the most difficult ones. They love Daniel, they love Ezekiel, and they love Revelation. And in Christian circles, you might have heard all sorts of weird and wonderful interpretations of those books. I can tell you, you've heard nothing of the interpretations of some of the things that I heard in those Bible studies. But there was one thing in those studies that I really, really loved. And that is that when you're talking to people outside of prison... The thing that is most difficult to communicate in that context was actually the easiest thing to communicate within the prison's context. When I'm talking to people just generally out and about in the world, the hardest things for people to comprehend, to get on board with, is the concept of sin. The concept of sin is not just being doing bad things, but fundamentally rebelling against God who made us and failing to give him the honour to which he is due. Now the guys, you tell that people around the world and that people really struggle, they refuse to think the idea that I could be a sinner. They might be able to think of someone else who's a sinner, who's done particular horrific things, but the idea that all of us descended from Adam have inherited that sin nature, which as I just said, just means that we, in our fundamental core, don't want to honour God, we don't want... him anyway involved in our life. But inside the prison, no one needed to be convinced that they were a sinner. They knew it. Every single day they woke up, they had freedom, had lack of freedoms that they never could have. They knew what they were like. The hardest thing they found, the biggest stumbling block, wasn't to come to understand that they were sinners. The thing they found hardest to comprehend was that. Jesus could forgive them. In their mind, they thought, I love what the Bible says, but you don't know what I've done. Now, on some cases, I did know what they'd done. Um, It wasn't a conversation you would initiate, but sometimes people would just share things and there were some horrific things they were in for. Now, there's an extent to which I could have said, oh, look at this, there's some of the claims of the Bible. How clear could it be? Jesus said truly, truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes in him who sends me, sounds like anyone who does this, they have eternal life present tense, it's theirs now he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life now I can imagine if I was to, to present that towards one of the guys in prison they'd say yeah that sounds really good I like the sound of it but there's still part of them thing. think that I'm not sure that applies to me If you really knew exactly what I did, sometimes people just want a tangible example that the things which are promised and claimed actually happen. And I love the fact the Bible is full of examples that people did some pretty rotten stuff who God graciously called his own children. In the Old Testament, I suppose David's one of your classical examples. A guy who who wanted some other guy's wife, he slept with her, then he didn't want the husband to find out of it, so he sends him to the front lines of war in order that he would die and he'd be killed. Yet David's called, in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart, one who God used quite mightily. David did respond, and if you read in Psalm 51 knowing the nature of his sin before God, he says, against you and against you alone have I sinned. Other famous examples, when Jesus has been crucified on the cross, there's a guy on each side and one of them who acknowledged that he deserved to die for what he'd done, trusted in Jesus to pay the punishment for his sin. But I think of all of the examples the Bible gives, this character Saul is probably the greatest example of a conversion story of the greatest act of the grace of God. As we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen everything from the beginning promised of Jesus to his followers (coughs) that you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book began with a group of about 120 people gathered together, we see the coming of the Spirit that God had promised, and they were. They were his witnesses. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria. That's kind of where we are at this point in history throughout the book of Acts. But we're in the tens of thousands from an initial number of 120. But amidst the phenomenal growth, we've also seen phenomenal opposition. The apostles were told by the leaders, you can't even mention this name Jesus ever again. They were beaten. They were put in jail. But the church continued to grow. It couldn't be stopped. The height of that persecution was probably in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, proclaiming that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Jewish hopes, all of the Old Testament expectations, They were so angered against him, they took him aside and they stoned him to death. And that was the context where we were introduced to Saul for the first time. In Acts 7.58, this is around the events of the stoning of Stephen. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, that's Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And just a few verses later... When Stephen gave that wonderful account of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, raised to the right hand of God, the fulfilment of all of the Jewish hopes, the Old Testament expectations, and it says, and Saul approved of his execution. He thought anyone who makes these claims about Jesus deserves death. This is the background to our man, Saul, who we're focusing our attention on today. So we go through the passage, we'll see from verses 1 to 19, it goes from hater to propagator. From persecutor to persecuted, in 19b to 25, and sending and multiplying. So firstly, from hater to propagator. Now where a passage began, Saul hasn't mellowed. He hasn't settled down in any sense whatsoever. If anything, he's probably intensified. Our first verses say, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this just tells you something of his fabric. He was breathing threats of murder against the disciples. It was the very fabric of who he was. He was driven with furious anger to try and bring the church into extinction. Now we've read previously in previous chapters how Saul was one who would take them off to imprisonment. But when you read the words threats of murder, you might think, oh yeah, say so what? He said a few nasty things. But in the book of Acts, we've got three different separate accounts of Saul's conversion because this is a major event from someone who is one of the greatest opponents to the Christian church and to Jesus becomes the greatest means by which it grows and flourishes. So we have this account where Luke is telling us what happened. And then we've got another account in verse chapter 22 and another in chapter 26 where Saul is describing his own conversion experience before other people. Each of them have unique details, but particularly the one in, in chapter 22, we see that he wasn't just threatening murder. He says, I persecuted this way to the death. He wasn't talking, just talking about, oh, you do this, I'll kill you. He killed people who proclaimed Jesus Christ. And here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 he's going to the high priest so they're fully on board with Saul to get letters giving him permission to enter the synagogues and if anyone names Jesus Christ to bring them back to have them placed into prison. Now we saw earlier that Saul was going door to door around Jerusalem like he wanted to make sure that nothing was left unturned to make sure this came to an end. It was how repulsive he thought it was that people were speaking about Jesus in this way but now it appears to have gathered a bit of momentum over in Damascus so he decided I'm heading off to Damascus. Now let's put this into context Jerusalem to Damascus, 190 kilometres didn't have car, didn't have a plane, that's a fair distance to travel by foot or by animal I got onto Google Maps just to try and put that into perspective. That's Toowoomba to Burley Heads. Maybe the view wasn't as nice at, at Damascus as it was at Burley Heads. but That's the sort of distance he was covering. That's how fanatical he was to make sure if this popped up somewhere else to completely extinguish it, bring it to nothing. And while he's on the way there and almost all of the way there to carry out his plans... God stops him in his tracks and shows him that God has very different plans for him. When he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now I can imagine that's a pretty traumatic experience for a guy who's so puffed up he thinks he's on a big mean old mission broad daylight a bright flashing light blinds the man brings him to the ground and the very person who he believes that all these Christians are claiming oh this Jesus is risen from the dead what a stupid idea addresses him personally and says why are you persecuting me? Now on one level you could say, well Saul's actually persecuting Christians, he's not persecuting Jesus. But such is the intimate connection between Jesus and his people. I mean the New Testament often uses the term in Christ as a way to describe who we are as Christians. That to persecute his people is a persecution against Jesus himself. And the one whom Saul claims to hate and opposes... Not only does he stop him in his track and say, why are you persecuting me? He says, you will go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You can't imagine that's going to go down too well. You're going there to stop people talking about Jesus. You're struck blind. You think you're going there in all power. You end up being led in there like a little child, someone holding your hand. And Jesus says and you will be told what you must do. I think the ESV just says, you'll be told what you are to do. But there's a translation of a Greek word, day, which means necessary. What you are obligated to do. So as Paul's charging in with all of his power to Damascus to try and destroy Christians, he arrives in weakness, needing someone to hold his hands, And being directed by Jesus, the plans that he has for his life. Now we read in verse 9 that he's not eating or drinking for three days. Presumably fasting. And throughout the scriptures often people are fasting as a sign of their, their remorse and their repentance. Can you imagine the kind of guilt that Saul may have been feeling? As he was persecuting with all his furious passion... Anyone who would teach about Jesus risen from the dead, yet he comes to encounter Jesus for himself and realise the thing that he's been most passionate about opposing actually was true. He's been killing innocent people who have actually been doing the right thing. Sometimes it's hard to wonder. When you go through the book of Acts, all of the massive church growth we've seen up until now, majority of it's been happening right in the area where Jesus' tomb was. And you think, man, if Saul and the guys just want to stop there, just open up the tomb, bring out a body all over. But all history records, there was an empty tomb. Presumably Saul agreed, as many Jews still do today, that the disciples stole the body. But as God had spoken to Saul, it's not just Saul whom he's speaking to. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and to the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he is seen in a vision, and name." a man named Ananias come in and on his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Can you imagine being Ananias hearing this? Ananias knows who Saul is. He, Ananias is a Christian. He knows that Saul's come to Damascus to persecute, to drag off to prison Christians. And God tells him, I want you to go to Saul and pray for him. Now, I can imagine that would be kind of like if you were a Jewish person and God tells you to go, Hitler's in your town, I want you to go and pray for him. It doesn't make sense. Ananias knows exactly who he's speaking to. Like he says, he knows, here I am, Lord, he says. But he's still got some questions. He's like, this sword he calls me to, this one who's come here to to drag off Christians. Do you want me going there? And then God reveals to me his big plan and says, Yeah, this guy. This guy has been the biggest opponent of the church. He is my chosen instrument to bring my name to the Gentiles, before kings and even before the children of Israel. Now last week we looked at trusting in the leading and the guiding of God. Something we probably don't talk about too much in the evangelical churches important topic, so if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. But look at Ananias as we see him trust God at his word. It says, Ananias went to the house, straight in, and prays for Saul. Is that what you and I would be most inclined to do? I think if I was being honest, I might go to Judas's house, see if I can somehow pull Judas aside and say you got this Saul guy here? Like, I've heard he's he's had a bit of a turnaround. Is it safe to approach him? But he doesn't even knock on the door. He goes, bowl straight in. Comes up to the man, lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which he came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised. What an act of trust. Not only to actually go there, but to lay hands on him, pray on him and call him his very own brother. And as he prays for him, Paul's physical blindness um, disappears and he's baptised. He is so convinced that this guy is a genuine follower of Jesus, the guy who was the persecutor, he is baptised. You often need to ask the question, do we think that there is anyone who God can't save? Is there anyone who is actually so wicked that could never be a Christian? The simple answer is no. No you hear countless stories I think Saul's a great example he wasn't just a guy who was killing people but killing people specifically because they were talking about Jesus when I was on our last holiday in New Zealand I met a guy who was selling books in Queenstown who was in one of the major biker gangs in New Zealand and had come to Christ and that was a, it was a fascinating read it was quite a disturbing read but a fascinating read of someone who you never would have expected now I myself certainly wasn't a violent person But from an intellectual point of view, I was very hostile to the gospel, very hostile to Christianity, despite the fact that I grew up going to a church. As you can probably guess, I've gone from being hostile, thinking Christianity was the most idiotic thing in the world, to being someone who's committed to being a minister of Jesus Christ. Um, That's my vocation. But for Saul, his conversion wasn't just of, okay, now he's in the Christianity club. It was a complete change of identity in his relationship with God, a complete change of his actions. So when you go from hater to a propagator of the gospel, what happens? Well, he goes from being the persecutor to the persecuted. What did Saul go to Damascus to do? To try and bring Christianity to nothing. To stop people talking about Jesus. Yet this same Saul when he comes to faith, oops, I got a wrong verse there. In verse twenty, says, "And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, 'He is the Son of God.'" That's the sort of transformation that's taking place here. A guy who's going to stop people saying this, and immediately the result was he goes to proclaim the very things that he came to persecute. I imagine the Christians are probably thinking, "Is this a trap?" Is he just trying to attract us in so he can, can kind of grab us and, and take us back? Now we're told that they're perplexed about this going on. Kind of, How does this work? This is the guy who came to, to kill us. But he didn't just talk about Jesus. He actually silenced them. He was so convincing, he says, and he proved to them that he was the Christ and people couldn't answer his wisdom. Just like was said back of Stephen in previous chapters. Now probably he went back to looking at some of the Old Testament passages. but you might think, this happened so suddenly, how do you be, go from being a massive opponent to being someone who can eloquently teach so that people can't refute that Jesus was the Messiah? I like to think of it this way as an example. Richard Dawkins, He's not a Christian yet he spends a lot of time engaging with Christians in debates, I'm sure he's heard all of the key arguments that Christians make and he could probably, if you asked him to, articulate from the Christian perspective all the things pertaining to Jesus. In that same sense, Saul in all of his engagement would have heard and known the claims of Christianity. He certainly heard them as Stephen brought his testimony before the tribunal. And now, as he's come to be a follower of Jesus, those things which he once opposed, he now holds and proclaims as truth. Now, after many days, in verse twenty-three, which incidentally is many days—it's actually three years—as we read that there was a, some other events we read in Galatians one fifteen to eighteen. So, after this three-year time, the Jews now want to see Saul killed. That's a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? Saul goes there to kill Christians, becomes one, and now the Jews want him to be killed. And they're every bit as passionate as Saul was. Every single city gate, they keep an eye on it to see if Saul is going to come in or out. And this man who once came in all of his pride, might and power, hoping to bring Christianity to nothing, gets guided to Damascus like a little child holding his hand, And leaves Damascus by being lowered out of a window in a basket. This isn't going to stop. You couldn't stop Saul. God's already proclaimed, this is my man. This is my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings and to the children of Israel. And the plans of men will not stop that. But you've got to wonder, where does he go? Jews want him dead. Christians are scared of him you would presume the safest place you could go would be to go back to the apostles. But as we see, they're not too sure either, a little bit standoffish. That's what the reputation of Saul was like. Even the disciples were not so sure about this claim that Saul was now a Christian. Until verse 27, we see Barnabas introduced for the second time in Acts. First time he was introduced, he was selling a, a block of land which he laid all of, the prof, all of the money at the feet of the apostles. His name meaning Son of Encouragement. And now, true to his name, he vouches for Saul as one who genuinely has seen Jesus, one who is proclaiming boldly the truth about Jesus, that he is one of us. And so Saul now in Jerusalem goes about boldly speaking in the name of Jesus and just as we've seen throughout all of the book of Acts, where people have proclaimed Jesus boldly, there's been trouble. There's been persecution. Think about Stephen when he interacted with the Hellenists. He was stoned for it. And now Saul is actively debating those same group of people. That would have been a difficult conversation because he would have been their hero. He would have been like, yeah, yeah. The Hellenists were thought, this guy's the man. He is so passionate at stopping this stuff and he's actually doing something about it. Now he comes back to his own supporters and says, you've got it wrong. These, these people who have been opposed and they've got it right. And now he's come back spreading what they thought was a damnable lie. And not surprisingly, they want him killed. But as we see time and time again, no one kills God's servants at a time before God is finished with the work that he's laid before them. So they are Christians, they take Saul to Caesarea, then off to Tarsus, to his home ground. So in chapter 9, we've got a fair bit of travelling going around, Jerusalem to Damascus. We don't actually see described in this account, but from Galatians, we go going from Damascus to Arabia and back to Damascus. Then to Jerusalem, Caesarea, and back home to Tarsus. And Acts has got lots of ups and downs. You've got times where the gospel is going forward in powerful ways. You see times where there's persecution in powerful ways. But there's always key events, a good, confident summary statement. And this reading is no exception to that rule. So despite all this, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So despite all the opposition, the church had peace, it grew, grew, and living in the fear of the Lord, recognising that He is our God, living in obedience to Him, enjoying Him, which sometimes leads you into difficult situations, is also partnered with and living in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That the one who might, even though we might be led into difficult situations, that God's spirit is with us always. And in that context where people are trusting God that deeply, comforted by his Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. It didn't just grow from the things that Saul do, did, but it multiplied. It, it duplicated. Those who learnt and were taught by Saul learnt to become others who taught and grew up other Christians The same similar idea we saw back in Acts chapter seven when, when the church was scattered. It wasn't just a random people going everywhere, they were scattered to sow, to plant, and to grow up and raise up other Christians. And we're going to see a lot more growth through this instrument of God named Saul in the coming weeks. The once persecutor, the now propagator. Now this is a great story. But if it's just a story, then we're wasting our time being here. What makes it a great story is that it's a true story. It's a true story of someone who so dramatically turned around from being violently opposed to Jesus to being the greatest proponent of spreading the good news about Jesus. In the 18th century, there was two British lawyers named Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. And they were atheists. And they thought to themselves, Christianity stands on really shaky ground. They said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Paul's conversion, as it's recorded in the Bible, says, you bring those things undone and everything of Christianity comes to nothing. And that's probably a fair statement to make if it was true. So what they decided is that Lord Littleton says, okay, I'll do the research, I'll write a book about Paul's conversion and Gilbert you're going to write a book about the resurrection of Jesus. So both of them wrote a book with the intention of proving, by looking and researching the historical material, to prove it wrong, to bring Christianity to nothing. Those books are still available because they're still published today. But there was a time as they were researching this stuff, one came to the other and goes, I've got a bit of a confession. I've been looking into this stuff and there's actually might be something to it. And the other guy is like, I don't know what I say, but I'm kind of finding the same. So those books are still available today. Books that were written with the intention of proving these two things they thought was the great foundations of the Christian faith, bring them to nothing, uh, and both actually came to to know Jesus in their experience of trying to prove him to be false. But Paul's conversion is probably the greatest story of someone of great opposition to Jesus, to being a follower of Jesus. Probably one of the greatest examples of the grace of God towards people. It's a sign that there's nobody beyond the saving grace of Jesus. Now so often I hear this this thing, is like, God couldn't save me, or God couldn't save this person. But when we say that, we effectively say that my sin is somehow more powerful than God. Really? Do you really think you're that powerful that something you do is more powerful than Jesus? who has all authority and power. Now imagine if, if these things were to happen today, churches across the, across the world would be inviting, come to our church and tell people your testimony about what, how Jesus changed you from where you are to where you are today. Because it is, it's an impressive story. And if you're like one of the many people who think, the only reason why I haven't trusted Jesus is that the good news just seems too good. It just seems like it's beyond my reach. You don't know what I've done. If the only thing holding you back is because you think you are too bad for God, then I can assure you you are not. The grace of Jesus is beyond any sin we could ever do. Now when we read through Acts 9, it kind of looks like it's an instant turnaround, doesn't it? It looks like Paul is completely opposed and then boom, he's like that. As I said, there are three different accounts of Paul's conversion and there's an interesting detail added in the one which where Paul describes the events himself before Agrippa in Acts 26. And when he'd fallen to the ground, this is recording the same events, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goats? Now, I wish the, a lot of English Bibles didn't use the word goads, because just for my own interest, hands up—you actually don't even know what goads are. There, yeah. so you think people think, "Oh, great, why, why are you kicking against the goads?" I wonder what a goad is. I wonder if that even helps anything. A goad is like a, a spiky stick or a stick or a rod with spikes on it, which they used to use to direct cattle. So if they go in a particular way, they give them a little spike with spike with that. And their natural reaction was, because they didn't like it, is they would kick against it to try and push it away, but in the process, because it was a spiky stick, they would end up hurting themselves even more. And what Jesus says to Saul is not only just why you're persecuting me, but he says, as I'm trying to lead you, direct you and guide you, why are you resisting that? Why are you kicking about what has been plainly made before you? And you kind of think, how? What, what has God been doing with Saul? What, what, what has Saul been resisting? And to be honest, the Bible doesn't give the exact details of that. But Saul, who was there when Stephen gave his account of Jesus Christ, Saul heard every word of it. And we read in that account that nobody was able to question the wisdom uh, of Stephen's account that he gave before them. And maybe there was part of him who thought, something toward it? But something was so deeply ingrained in his heart it was like, this can't be true. That even the very luring of his own heart, he just silenced it. And it took a radical encounter that he had on the road to Damascus to turn things around. I was a goad kicker. I grew up going to church all my life but majority of my time it had no appeal to me whatsoever but there was probably a good gap of four or five days between me believing the gospel and responding to it and like i was actually feeling drawn to it drawn to jesus but there was a deep resounding resentment at the same time because i'd made it very publicly known how stupid it was to be a christian I'd made it very clear that you're an idiot if you're Christian, if you believe that, that there's some magical God who somehow just created everything, and that, that somehow we should honour him, and, and if he does exist, that it's fair that he should punish people for their sin against him, and that Jesus somehow died, and yeah, somehow apparently he raised again from the dead. Because I knew enough of growing up in churches that to trust in Jesus required some changes in my life. And there were some of those changes I didn't want. Matter of fact, even when I did come to trust in Jesus, there were some of them I was convinced I was never going to change. And that's what kept me between the I believe this is true, was that this is causing me to change. And I was kicking against it to my own detriment. We've seen in this passage, there's no one beyond the grace of God. Maybe that's not your stumbling block. Your stumbling block might not be thinking about how much you've done against God. Your stumbling block might be, I want to believe, but there's something deep down that's kind of resisting it. I'm kind of feel drawn to it. But there's something in me that kind of keeps want to push aside. And if that was you this morning I would encourage you, stop kicking the goats. I can tell from my own experience to go from someone who was kicking thinking, I don't want to make these changes. I knew God had had these things in mind. I couldn't live this Christian life. I thought it was too much. God's, God's been faithful along the way. He's done those things. I could trust him that I didn't have to keep kicking and resisting against them. And if that be you this morning, then I can assure you too, God's grace is sufficient. And God if he is drawing you in your heart and you're yourself attracted to him, to Jesus and what he has done for you, stop kicking the goats. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the gospel not only is a good news for every single person who's ever reborn, but where it may bear fruit is not dependent upon what we might see from an external point of view. You call some from amongst people who have grown up always going to church and have always done um, nice, pleasant lives. But you also draw to yourself people who have a very dark and wicked past. Sometimes a, a path that is laden with guilt, Remorse. And Lord, you simply came to die for that very purpose. To take away our sin and our guilt and our condemnation. All of that was placed upon Jesus Christ on our behalf. And just as Jesus said in in John chapter 5, all who believe in him have life now. They will not come into judgment, but have already from death to life we thank you that you are a God who is true to all of your promises we thank you that your grace abounds so much more than our sin ever could we give you thanks for that in Jesus name Amen